Hey everyone, this is Guns, and welcome to another episode of the Sea Table Podcast, where we try to make sense of what's going on in European technology. Today, I have with me Moritz Müller Freitag, COO and co-founder of 20BN. And let me tell you something, today's conversation was a blast. 20BN, which stands for 20 billion neurons, is a company building human-centric AI technology and bringing seen and sociable digital assistants to life. We start by talking about the company's origin story and their first product, a smart virtual fitness trainer. And then we move on to the difference between building a company in Berlin and Toronto, whether innovation in AI is slowing down, and his playbook for building deep tech companies. But then the conversation warms up and we go into very seat table-esque topics like the second order consequences of regulation, his unique process for picking books, the lessons we both draw from Robert Caro's writing, and much, much more. Moritz got my attention on Twitter thanks to his quarantine reading challenge called The Pandemic Book Club and his review of a fantastic new book called Disunited Nations. And I'm so happy I DM'd him because I, I had so much fun. So there's nothing else to say than I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Hey Moritz, welcome to the Seed Table podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. How are you doing? Good, thanks for having me. So. Let's dive straight in. Um, you're doing something quite new with 20VN. You're building human-centric AI tech. So what was the moment when you said, like, shit, we can actually do this? That's a really good question. So, I mean, maybe let me explain what we do at 20BM. So, so we're a machine learning startup based in Berlin, Toronto, and we build interactive vertical specific AI assistants uh, that can see, hear, and understand you. So you can think of it as kind of a virtual Alexa with eyes in that it's a software-based AI-powered virtual character that runs on your smartphone or your tablet. So there's no need to buy any hardware. It has eyes and ears and a brain. So in contrast to Alexa or Google Home, the character on, on the screen can hear and see you. And it has a basic awareness of its environment and of human interactions. Um, and, and we're bringing this technology to market uh, in the form of a highly verticalized application. Uh, and the first application uh, is an AI-powered virtual fitness trainer, which is a, a simple-to-use app that consumers can download and run straight from their smartphones. And what the virtual trainer does is uh, she guides you through workouts, she provides encouragement, and she proactively corrects form using a deep neural network that was trained to see and understand what's happening in the real world. And I think the very first time I realized that we were building something special is when we you know, had the very first system running up in our company you know, that was tracking what the human was doing and was accurately predicting what, what was happening. So kind of this, this awareness aspect that, for the first time, an AI is aware of you in the room and it can see you and it can, res it can, it can respond intelligently to you. This was a very magical moment. Um, and we've been trying to build on top of that uh, ever since. And we've been trying to roll out products that you know, leverage this technology and make it, you know, make it touchable for the, for the consumer. Take me back to your founding story. Like, what's like the non-PR version of how 20PN started? Like how did you meet your co-founders? How did the idea came about? Yeah, so we, we founded the company four years ago. I have a background in economics and I started working on, on data science projects while still at university. And through my work, I began following the Sewell AI revolution uh, that was ignited in 2012 with the, the big image that breakthrough and image recognition. And I came personally to the conclusion that I wanted to build a company in that space. And I met my co-founders um, in the final stages of my graduate studies. My co-founder, Roland, previously did his PhD in, in deep learning with Jeff Hinton and then co-led the Montreal Institute for Learning Algorithms together with Yosho Benjo. Uh, so you work with you know, two of the, the titans of AI. My other co-founder, Ingo, was one of the, the first engineers at Xing, which is um, the German competitor of LinkedIn. And uh, two other members of our founding team also had a very deep background in, in AI. And the problem we identified in 2016 
was that many of the smart devices we had around us were really constrained by the limitations of the underlying technology. You know, smart speakers like, Google, uh, like Alexa or Google Home can hear you, but they are essentially blind and confined to very, very simple tasks like, you know, how is the weather? And then you have connected smart equipment like Peloton or Mirror, but they only give you kind of a rudimentary sensor reading. Uh, there's no bi-directional interaction between you and the trainer because the trainer can't see you. And applications that leverage computer vision more generally are good at detecting objects or humans, but they really can understand human actions and behaviors. They're very rough around the edges. They have very bad performance, you know, fast dynamic movements. They have problems with the occlusions and the UI in general sucks because the user has to position, has to position themselves in a certain way in front of the depth, you know, in front of a depth camera for the system to detect anything correctly. And so we, we banded together in 2016 and bet on the thesis that, uh, you know, highly interactive AI experiences, you know, will drive the next wave of, of smart device applications. And by that, I mean that the application is multimodal. So it's powered by an, by an AI that, that sees and understands you. Um, so it understands both the verbs and the nouns, both the actions and the objects. An AI that's uh, accessible because it's inexpensive, it's portable, it's with you all the time, so there's no need for extra hardware. And an AI that's highly personalized and individualized because you have a, this bi-directional interaction between the device and the user. And to that end, we've built a full-stack end-to-end AI platform with our very own data factory for sourcing and labeling video data uh, in a cost-effective way with custom-built neural networks that deliver higher quality predictions um, and interactions than was previously possible, and with kind of a toolbox and infrastructure to squeeze these neural networks so they run on mobile chipsets uh, without comp compromising you know, the user's privacy. And this is the AI platform that's you know, today powering the applic applications we roll out, and, um, and you know, we're starting with fitness. What are some of the underrated challenges in building an AI or a deep tech startup? Like something that you just don't get when doing say software as a service or direct to consumer? Sure, so I mean, let's start by defining what deep tech actually means. Um, to me, deep tech is all about developing a unique, you know, proprietary, hard to reproduce technology that has the power to, you know, either create its own markets or disrupt existing ones. Uh, so the gist is that you invest in R&D to build this enabling technology that's driving new applications. And the risk is that you, you know, one, that you fail at building it, you know, because true innovation is hard. And uh, two, that you can't find product market fit with what you've come up with. And so you're, you're essentially dealing with two risks at the same time. You're, you're dealing with a technology risk and you're dealing with a product market fit risk. And this is why you know, deep tech companies, when they raise a series A, often have barely solved the technology risk part and they often have not fully established product market fit. And this was also the case with 20BM. And I think that's the main difference to the playbook of traditional startups because the vast majority of startups of traditional startups use available, well-understood technologies. They leverage the cloud, they leverage open source to, to quickly develop a product and then interact with their first customers to find product market fit. You know, they, they don't engage in much R&D at the early stage. And with, with deep tech, you have this intermediate step of R&D. And only when you've to risk and built your technology, you can really power through. If you're a chip startup building a hardware accelerator, you can only go to market you know, once you've shown that the performance of your chip is better than, let's say, an NVIDIA GPU. Uh, and if you're a biotech company that is trying to develop a new drug, you can only go to market you know, when you've come up with a drug that actually works. Uh, and we had to work ourselves to the same you know, at 20BN. And luckily, we've now completed this R&D stage and we've de-risked the technology and it works in order of magnitude better in terms of performance and accuracy uh, and deployability than the status quo. So you were talking about 20BN and, and having de-risked the first part of the journey, which is 
uh, technology. So what are some of the challenges that come with or, or that you guys went through uh, particularly specific or specifically to an artificial intelligence company? So every startup that uses machine learning as the core technology of their business needs access to high quality training data. And as an early stage startup, you often have kind of a cold start problem when it comes to data acquisition uh, in that you, you know, without data, you can't build your product. And without a product, you can't collect data. So it's kind of similar to this chicken and egg problem that online marketplaces face at the beginning. And so one of the key decisions we had to make when we got started was how to get our hands on high quality real world video data. And the prevailing approach in computer vision is that you look for an already existing video data set and then you have crowdsourcers annotate your videos with, label it, with labels of bounding boxes. So you, you take an existing video and you label it. And we decided to do it the other way around. We first created um, a taxonomy of, of descriptive labels. So, you know, stuff like person drinking a glass of water, person pretending to drop a ball or person doing a sloppy jumping jack uh, without moving the arms. And then we asked crowd workers to record videos for us and, and label them. And, and we call this approach to training data generation crowd acting because we have a very large crowd of, of humans all over the world who are recording and labeling videos uh, to teach our neural network how the physical world works. And we, we initially tried to outsource these tasks to crowdsourcing platforms like Amazon Mechanical Turk or Crowdflower. But we quickly realized that these platforms weren't designed to handle video uh, and, and the quality also really sucked, uh, which is bad because neural networks are only as good as the data you feed into them. And so we really became obsessed with generating the best possible video training data in our domain and started building our own data factory uh, with an automated human verification system to assure data quality at scale. And to date, we've collected over 5 million training videos. Every day we add up to 45,000 new videos to our library. And to the best of our knowledge, this is the largest uh, growing video data set for human behavior understanding. It's kind of our you know, image net for video. So this was on the data side. On the technology side, well, you know, the the, the challenge with building a frontier technology is that you have to invest in R&D. Uh, that makes everything much more complicated, in my opinion, because market validation then starts with technical validation, right? Because you're, you're trying to make science fiction a reality. Um, and so we didn't start by, you know, once we had some data, we didn't start by building a minimum viable product for customers. We started by building the key components of our data AI platform. And, and we started sourcing you know, this large data set to build you know, a minimum viable technical validation to prove out the technology. And this technical validation was a, a gesture recognition system that could reliably detect dynamic hand gestures running on a laptop and using only a standard RGB camera. So no need to you know, have a variable or a stereo camera or time of flight, just standard consumer hardware. And, and, and then we began you know, slow, to slowly expand the capabilities of the system to, to more general human actions. And in parallel, we began commercializing by licensing data and software components of our platform to large enterprises. And to be very honest with you, it was very hard in the beginning because you know, if you, you know, identifying a pain point and then spending a considerable amount of, of time building and de-risking your technology forced us to ignore some of the lean startup principles along the way, which is very counterintuitive because you essentially start at the wrong end of the food chain. You, know, you don't start with shipping a product to the user and then iterating. You start by building a technology and building credibility, you know, first with the AI community, which we did by open sourcing to training data sets, uh, and then you you create you you build credibility with AI leaders in large companies through pilot projects. And so there were definitely many loops we had to jump through before we were even ready to ship our first product to uh, to consumers, uh, which we did this year. And so 
I definitely think the playbook for building, you know, a deep tech company is very different to the playbook of building a traditional startup, as I said before. How do you measure success or progress? Is that just technical milestones or because you're not sort of exposing this to the market just yet? We're still talking about the first phase. Initially, it was mostly technical benchmarks. But even if you, you know, you're not ready to build the kinds of products you want to build, you still have to get into a conversation with the market as quickly as possible because otherwise you will always build something that doesn't solve a customer pain point. And, and the way we started you know, that conversation with the market was you know, first interacting within the AI community to validate the technical approach then you know doing pilot projects you know with automotive companies and and consumer device companies and you know you know slowly iterating the, the technology and also our thinking in terms of business model and and our thinking has definitely changed as we were communicating with the market that way right you know our initial hypothesis uh, was that we would go to market with this platform by you know offering platform tools for the ai developer community and to enable every enterprise out there who wants to build products powered by interactive AI. And, and we did get some traction with that model. I mean, we did some major, major licensing deals in the consumer device and, and the automotive industry. And we used these deals kind of to, you know, as key KPIs to, to hold ourselves accountable. But we also realized in that process that we were really, that was really early days in, in our industry. You know, in 2018, uh, we went into production with a large U.S. tech company with a consumer consumer device application they were building. Uh, but many of the non-tech companies we were working with didn't have the in-house talent and the resources to work with our platform in a self-service way. And, and we also realized that many of the companies who approached us who wanted to use the platform want to use it for use cases like surveillance or passive monitoring. And so we, we were both early coming you know coming to market with a self-service business model for this technology and the market didn't understand the kinds of applications you can build with this capability and so we we, we felt compelled to make a pivot last year and build the first end-user applications ourselves and we ended up choosing fitness because i mean first of all it's a huge growth market it's, it's a use case that, you know, uniquely benefits from a visual interaction between the user and the device because, you know, when you have a fitness trainer, what this person is doing when they are, they're coaching you, they're watching you do the exercise and giving you real-time feedback. It also seemed to ask us that fitness is one of the first battlegrounds in the smart home for, for these more interactive experiences as seen by the success of Peloton and Mirror. And COVID-19 has definitely been a boost uh, because it has accelerated the digital fitness boom and it has also changed previously entrenched consumer behavior. So I think this is like kind of a, a confluence of factors we saw last year that encouraged us to make this pivot and you know show the world what you can do with the technology and just bridge that you know the the time it takes to roll out more self-service platform tools to the community. Other than fitness, so the sort of the new thing is called Fitness Alley, right? Um, fitness Alley, yes. Yeah. So other than fitness, what other options do you consider and why you rejected them? So I think, you know, in the, in the home fitness landscape, the consumer currently has two options. The first option is what we internally refer to a high dollar smart mirror, which is, you know, a mirror or a tonal or a tempo. You know, these are, you know, connected smart equipment. They cost two, three thousand dollars to buy, and then you have to buy a forty. You have to you know purchase a forty dollars subscription per month to actually use the device. And these devices are not multimodal because it's essentially it's a, it's a streaming technology to stream uh, high quality workouts with telegenic trainers to the user. But there's no real interaction going on, and in that the trainer sees you. Tempo is doing this a little, but uh, the others are definitely not doing that. All, all these options are not accessible because it's, it's an expensive purchase. And they're also only personal to the extent that a, you know, a trainer on the other side is giving you feedback. But the trainer usually doesn't remember you know, how a workout was three weeks ago. So that's like one option consumers have. 
the other options consumers have in the market is what we we call low fidelity fitness apps. So you know companies like Onyx, XRAI, uh, Kaya, you know very accessible consumer apps, but also very limited in terms of their capabilities because they you know they can either count reps or they can time exercises, but they are also not multimodal uh, or personal. And we wanted to build a, a product that combines the best of both worlds. You know, highly interactive, highly personal, multimodal AI because the device can see, hear, and interact with you, but also accessible. And that's what we came up with Fitness AI. Tony Vian is set up in a very specific way, a very particular way. You have offices in Berlin, where you are right now, and, and Toronto. And that's a very unique combination. Why those two cities? But most importantly, what's unique about each tech hub? Like we always do this like US versus Europe thing, but like I never think about the difference between Canada and Europe. Like that's probably because I know nothing about Canadian technology, but like I'd love to sort of learn more and get, get into this a bit. Yeah. So Berlin and Toronto uh, are very different startup ecosystems in terms of uh, you know, both their history and the types of companies that are being, that are being founded there. Um, Berlin, as you know, has a very strong focus on consumer internet uh, and SaaS companies. Uh, you have lots of e-commerce companies you know, with Rocket Internet, Zalando, Delivery Hero. Uh, you have some interesting fintech plays like N26 and Finleap but you have comparatively few AI startups. Uh, I mean, there are a couple like 20BN or Mirantix or Raza, but it's not, not a very long list. It's growing, but it's not, it's not you know, that focus of this ecosystem. And Toronto, in contrast, is a real deep tech hub. You know, it's, it's home to many interesting startups in the AI space. Uh, a lot of tech companies like Uber and Samsung and NVIDIA have AI research labs in the city. And the whole ecosystem has very deep roots in AI neural networks because uh, during the last AI winter we had in the 80s, the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research, uh, CIFAR, was the only government agency worldwide other than the military that provided financial support to scientists like Jeff Hinton or Yandaka or Yosha Benjo who did critical research in, into neural networks, uh, which are today you know, the most powerful form of, of machine learning. And, and so for us, Berlin and Toronto uh, was a good combination of cities to found 20BN in because, I mean, first of all, the founding team was split between Berlin and Toronto, so there was a personal reason. And the personal reason is usually the, the, the honest answer why, why companies are based in certain cities or why you know, the first, you know, second engineering office is, 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 is built in a certain city. It's usually because it's you know, a certain important person, the com company that wants to move there or, or, or lives already there. But there are definitely also business reasons you know, for being in Berlin and Toronto because by being in Toronto, uh, we are in a deep tech hub, which gives us access to research talent uh, and the AI community. And by being in Berlin, we, we get to be in a very vibrant, affordable European startup ecosystem with access to great engineering and business talent. And so I think we get the best of both worlds, like the, the affordable, vibrant, artsy city that's, you know, very open to foreigners, you know, with very low barriers in terms of you know, visa process, language. And you definitely also have, you know, the, 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 the rebellious spirit in the city that, you know, people are constantly challenging the, the status quo. And uh, that's exactly what entrepreneurs are doing. But we also have, you know, our, you know, both of our feet in, in, in a very, you know, unique deep tech hub, uh, which is the birthplace of AI. And that's Toronto. You started 20BN in 2015, right? Yes. Okay. So I'm wondering, when you started the company and, and, and you started like recru recruiting a team and, and fundraising, how did Berlin respond to this as a sort of tech ecosystem five years ago, right? Because you said it perfectly. Like Berlin is e-commerce, consumer, travel, some SaaS, uh, yeah, so we, we began looking for a seed round in early 2016, and we raised that seed round from a US-based angel investor who is uh, a serial entrepreneur in the field of AI and who you know, played a very important role in helping us shape the vision and also act as personal mentor to the founders. We didn't find anyone who would fund the company in, in Europe at that point. 
And two years later, we raised the Series A that was back then led by M12, the venture arm of Microsoft and a syndicate of German and American investors. But you know, also at Series A, we noticed that it was significantly more difficult in Berlin, but also in Europe as a whole, to raise a round of fundraising with a deep tech proposition. And, and my impression is that Bay Area VCs tend to be more technical in background than some European VCs, and that there's also kind of a higher risk appetite for technologies that have the potential to move walls and change assumptions. And so we did definitely notice that, that, you know, without our, our office in Toronto, without our very strong roots in North America, it probably the company today would look differently because we would have probably not had the capital to build out, you know, this unique technology infrastructure we, we have now and that we stand on to, you know, build these powerful tools and products. Let me go back to something you mentioned, and you were saying about this AI winter a few decades ago, and there's this camp of, of people claiming that, <clears throat> sorry, the, the rate of productivity is slowing down. And I'm not going to get super deep into this very Peter Thiel argument, but it does look like from the outside that like innovation in AI and is slowing uh, down. And some some people, and not me, but I, I've heard this, like are talking about another AI winter. Like what's behind this? Yeah, so I think the reality is that techni- technological evolution is rarely linear. And what we've seen in the field of AI in the last eight years was essentially a series of, of step functions defined by these sudden, often unexpected outbreaks of capability. You know, that happened in 2012 with image recognition. Two years later, it happened with machine translation, then voice synthesis, then beating the world champion in the game of Go and so on. And I think that after a series of remarkable achievements in deep learning, we're seeing the inevitable slowdown and breakthroughs that are presented at academic conferences uh, which, which doesn't mean that we're entering another AI winter. I think what's actually happening is that after several years of hype and lots of funding, we're gaining a better understanding of what current AI is really good at and what its limitations are. And some problems like autonomous driving is, you know, are just very, very hard to solve. And it's going to take much more time than the community initially expected. And the other problem is that deep learning is still a relatively complex technology. And so, you know, we've seen that enterprises that don't have the right talent find it uh, quite difficult to adopt AI and bring stuff into production. You know, the, the big tech companies have the resources, the talent, the conviction in deep learning to, to run with it. And they're running with it at a very, very fast pace. But everyone else is still, you know, playing catch up. And, and lastly, I think startups and investors are also still figuring out what the playbook for, for defensible AI business is. Okay, let, let, let me stop you right there because uh, were, we were discussing the deep tech playbook and you, now you mentioned the AI playbook. So like, what's the AI playbook? Yeah, so my impression is that we're still in the process of coming up with, with a full AI playbook. You know, a, a sort of playbook definitely exists for building companies in SaaS or mobile because we know how to scale these companies. But this, the playbook for scaling AI companies is still being written as we speak. And I think in many ways, AI companies do resemble traditional software companies in that you know, there's, the, there's an opportunity to, to kickstart a data network effect where you can continuously personalize and improve your product with customer data. And in another way, you know, AI companies probably don't resemble your traditional SaaS business because the upfront investment in gathering your first data set plus the cloud infrastructure and the human support you sometimes have, have to deploy to, you know, can, can lead to, to lower gross margins. But it really depends, you know, case by case. In the 20BN, we found that, you know, a way of, we found a way of generating, generating data in a cost-effective way and we found a way to get our systems to run on mobile chipsets without the cloud or, or a human in the loop. And both have had positive effects on our gross margin, but that might be very different to, uh, for other AI companies. And so I think we're in this very early deployment phase of AI where we're figuring out the playbook uh, as we go along. And in a couple of years, you know, investors and entrepreneurs will tell 
you know, how to apply that play, playbook successfully. But by that time, probably the low-hanging fruits in AI are, are going to be picked and uh, the problems are going to be harder. So it's always this kind of, you know, inventing, you know, new organizational systems and, and playbooks as you go. Uh, and you can only, realize, only in hindsight, you can determine what the, the, the key driving factors for, for each playbook are. I do SaaS, I do growth usually uh, for SaaS and e-commerce. And whenever I have a question, I can find an answer to that question. It's I reach out to someone, I use Google, I pay for stuff, whatever. But it's, it's very straightforward, right? This has been done a million times. And it's clear that for AI, that's not the case. So when you face where we're, when you're faced with an uncertainty how do you deal with that how do you try to operate uh like and minimize the risks i think like in every industry over time you build a network with other founders with investors and you start comparing notes i definitely have a couple of people here in berlin that i consult regularly that are building ai companies and so when i encounter you know a specific challenge you know, and, you know, approaching a customer, thinking about business models. I have a couple of people I, I go to and, you know, I'll bounce ideas off. And I also have a couple of investors I, I, I catch, catch up with regularly and ask them for advice. And so I think this, you know, network forms. And that's also, you know, the importance of ecosystems. I think if we wouldn't be based in Toronto, our network to, you know, former operators who have built AI companies you know, maybe in the old, you know, the old age of, you know, the 70s, 80s, 90s, or a couple of years ago, we wouldn't have, you know, so much access to them. Uh, we're very plugged into, you know, the system in, in Toronto and in the Bay Area. And so that is very helpful, in, you know, evaluating these opportunities and also, you know, you know where to take risks and where to avoid them. I think that's that's the critical role and the critical challenge we're going to have in, in, in Europe in the future, and that we have to build this ecosystem-specific knowledge, these mentors, these sounding boards that founders can rely on to build these businesses, and also you know avoid some of the some of the pitfalls and some of the mistakes that you all too easily step into, which then you know lead your company to fail. Perfect. So. AI is a nascent industry. Um, and here's where I'm going. So the, the European Commission has a track record of regulating industries as soon as they reach a decent size. Um, and AI is, is maybe not there yet, but do you think how should government approach AI regulation? Yeah, so in my eyes, the whole discussion around regulating AI is really a discussion about trust. Um, when you look at problems like data privacy or algorithmic biases or deep fakes, all these problems have an erosion of consumer trust at their core. And that's why people are calling for government regulation. Um, now, the, the challenge with regulating technology is with regulating technology today is the, the increasing pace of technological change we're seeing today because traditional government regulation tends to be very reactive in nature. You know, the thinking is that you first let the market develop freely and you only institute incremental change as specific threats and problems emerge. And this tends to work well in slow moving fields, but it definitely doesn't work so well in fast moving fields like AI, because on the one end you have companies who are innovating at an increasingly fast pace. And on the other hand, you have a slow moving legal system and regulators who are slow in understanding the implications of new technologies. And we've seen this over the last years in the field of privacy regulation. You know, it took the European Union many years to draft an update to the data, to the, to the data protection regulation. And what they've come up with is disclosure and consent, which is you know, a well-intentioned regulatory tool that seeks to empower consumers, but it's also a very weak regulatory tool because it allows tech companies to cloak malicious intent in complex legal language that's you know, frankly impossible to understand for most consumers. And I think we're essentially dealing with a particular case of the Collingridge dilemma where 
you know, in the early days of an emerging technology like UAI, like AI, you have an information problem because when a new technology is just emerging, regulators still have the power to regulate, but they often have insufficient clarity on, on what the technology's implications are. And in the later days, when the technology is more advanced and when you have more clarity, uh, you have a power problem because the technology has essentially become entrenched. And, and that's what we're basically seeing with, with the big tech companies right now. So, so again, I, I think there's a case for regulating AI, but I also think that a different, more proactive approach to regulation is needed. You know, one where the regulator works closely with the different stakeholders, be that you know, startup, startups or companies or consumer protection agencies, where regulation focuses on outcomes instead of just rules and which you know, is more iterative and data-driven. And I think a good example of such regulation is what the FCA has done in the, U in the UK fintech space, which is setting up these regulatory sandboxes that allow startups to test new products under close supervision of the, of the regulator. And then once something works, you roll out to the whole market. And I think this kind of bottom-up, forward-looking regulation tends to work you know, much better than the top-down reactive approach that you know, is, is currently being practiced by the European Union. Let's spend a few minutes on data privacy, because uh, that's a topic I'm, I'm very interested about. And actually, I read through the entire new EU data uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, proposition a few months ago. So what would your approach be to sort of solve this data privacy? Because you have clearly strong opinions when it comes to sort of the, the errors that the commission did when putting that together. Yeah, well, I mean, let's start by looking at how privacy is being, quote unquote, solved by the regulator today. Um, in Europe, as you said, we have GDPR. California has a version of GDPR, the, the CCPA, which came into effect in January. And both GDPR and CCPA are comprehensive privacy frameworks that seek to empower the consumer by giving them tools to exercise their data rights. And the primary tool the European Union has come up with is privacy self-management, which means we're giving consumers very broad and very strong rights over their own data, but they have to assert these rights themselves, you know, by reading privacy policies, uh, by opting out if they don't agree with them, by changing their privacy settings on the different platforms they, they are active on. And by going down this path, I think the regulator has come up with an incredibly weak regulatory tool uh, because the problem with privacy self-management is that the consumer has to carry all the burden. And I don't think that scales in the long term because, the, I mean, the, just speaking personally, the number of organizations that, that are gathering my data is probably in the hundreds, you know, maybe even thousands. So there's no way a consumer can read all these privacy policies, let alone understand them. And even if you read them, even if you read them all, you know, you have no ability to, to negotiate the terms of these policies. You know, using Google, using Facebook, using TikTok is essentially a take it or leave it offline. And so you have this very weird combination of excessive information costs. The risk of sharing your data is very abstract. And you have a complete lack of bargaining power on the side of the consumer. And I think that results in the, in the worst of all worlds where the consumer can't meaningfully protect their privacy because it's a complex and never ending project. And you have you know, a wholly separate problem, which is monopoly power in the marketplace because big companies with large balance sheets treat GDPR or CCPA as a simple cost of business, while small companies and startups suddenly face additional barriers in competing with large tech players because for them, navigating the regulatory mazes you know, creates friction. And especially in industries where you leverage machine learning, which in the future is going to be every industry, whoever has the most data has the best product and you know, has thus the most users coming to them who give them more data. And so there's this virtuous cycle that makes companies bigger. And GDPR doesn't solve for, you know, this root cause of the problem, both on the consumer and, and, and the, the, the company side. It, it just focuses on some of the symptoms. So 
you know, what to do about it. I mean, to be completely honest, I'm, I'm still collecting my thoughts on the topic. So I don't have a magic bullet answer. But I, I think to solve these issues around data privacy and these issues around monopoly power, we have to make the transition from, from you know, individualist protection like GDPR to, to a more collaborative approach. And like, I believe there needs to be some form of collective bargaining mechanism on the consumer side, coupled with data sharing between smaller companies who don't have enough data to compete with the large tech companies. And one idea is to enable collective bargaining by having consumers pool their data rights to acquire some negotiation power with large tech companies. So, I mean, let's play this through as a thought experiment. Imagine you're on the app store and you're about to download an app. And as you click the download button, uh, a pop-up appears and you're presented with different options to join, you know, an intermediary, like call it whatever you want, a data union, whatever. And that entity takes stewardship of, of your data and fights for your data rights. Because I, I don't believe, you know, the individual consumer is going to change much. But if you suddenly have, you know, 10 or 100 million users and someone who collectively fights for their rights, I think suddenly you have, you've created a very powerful voice. And that's a, a, a well-known insight from public choice theory that you know, special interests tend to win because it's easier for a small group to organize and to fight for their interests than a very large group. You know, that's basically the, the idea behind lobbying. And so if I were an investor or you know, a founder searching for an, an idea in this space, I would, I would do some research, research in that area. There's... There's obviously these other, this, I mean, there's other ideas how to solve it. I mean, there's this idea of, of creating a marketplace for, for your data using, using crypto. But my impression is that it's going to take another five or 10 years until we see you know, the first promising concepts. And, and then to wrap this up, we, I think we also have to reverse the power asymmetry between the large uh, tech monopolies who have all the data and everyone else. And I think you can solve that with regulation or with antitrust. But, you know, another way would be to enable smaller companies to share data with industry peers, you know, using federated learning or some other technique that is compliant with data protection regulation. And I believe, you know, any company that is not a market leader in the industry should have an incentive to share the data in exchange for everyone else sharing the data. And, and we're beginning to, you know, slowly to see some interesting companies in that space. Most of them are still stealth. But this is an area where I expect a lot of entrepreneurial activity this decade. The, you mentioned power asymmetries between big tech and the rest. And the, the funny thing about that is that regulate, regulators are actively trying to erode that power. And, and with good reason, I'd say. <laughs> but the funny, th the funny thing is when they put out stuff like GDPR or let's say uh, like the content moderation or like copyright directives, content directives, they're actually doing the opposite. Like the second or the consequences of their actions is actually like digging a deeper mode around Facebook and, and Google. Because as you said, it's, it's the cost of, of doing business for them. But smaller players now have to actually invest in this or just figure this out before actually competing with the bigger players like why do you think like that's that's not a super complex thought process why do you think regular regulators are missing this because they are they are absolutely missing this yeah i think it's this combination of you know very fast moving companies and you know who are small and nimble and agile and i think even the large tech companies have you know done a remarkable job building cultures that enable them to move very fast and on the other end having this you know large very bureaucratic slow moving legal system and political apparatus that oftentimes has a very poor understanding of of you know you know how technology creates value and how these business models actually work and so i think oftentimes one of the issues is that regulators don't take into account the concept of that, that you described of unintended consequences like you you do something that is well-intentioned but you come up with something that actually you know because you don't measure the results you come up with something that actually decreases the uh, or actually you know makes the problem much much worse 
And you also have the problem that, that the regulators sometimes don't take that time to study, you know, you know, how technology, you know, changes the assumptions of an industry. And so they're working with sometimes outdated concepts to, to approach the problem. I think we're also seeing it, you know, in the, in the, in the gig economy where, you know, Uber and Lyft are now threatening uh, to take their service offline in California because the regulator is forcing their workforce, their, their on-demand workers to, you know, attain employment status. And, you know, the whole concept of employment and independent contractors are concepts that are probably outdated. Like, I mean, an on-demand gig economy worker fits neither of these two uh, it's too binary. It's too binary. And so I think we have to come up with a wholly new description of the reality. And before that, like before the regulator doesn't have an understanding of, you know, the new realities that technology has created, they will always come up with problems that, you know, have unintended consequences because they, they approach the whole thing, you know, with an outdated mindset and an outdated map. And that's not to be, that's not a knock on the regulator. It, it's, it's a very complex system. Every system is path dependent. And as I mentioned earlier, the longer you wait, the, the more you know, entrenched power becomes. But, but I think there's, you know, there's definitely this need on the side of the regulator to get up to speed with you know, how the innovation economy works and to then you know, have a more iterative approach to regulation. But shouldn't regular regulators start with the assumption that sort of society, right, or however you want to call it, is a complex system? And it's non-linear and whatever you do, like there's no clear input-output relationship. So maybe, I don't know, whenever you put something out, maybe save some budget, some, some resources, some time to actually study the impact of said regulation and then adjust as you go. Because that would, would, that's what tech companies do, right? They put something out, they experiment, and then they adjust as they go. I know. Like, I don't expect you to have the answer right. I'm just... Yeah. Well, definitely. I mean, every startup, you know, once you launch a product, every investor expects you to measure outcomes and optimize. <laughs> and that's not how the government works. And also, you know, oftentimes the, the understanding of you know, the scale and the nature of the problem is also missing. I mean, you, you mentioned moderation at scale. You know, the idea that Facebook or Google can solve the problem of fake news or algorithmic bias by, you know, simply you know, applying human oversight and intervention ignores the scale and nature of the problem because it's not a know, quantity uh, problem. Yeah. It's not, I mean, not only that it's, you know, these players have billions of users uh, on their platforms every day who are being served algorithmically curated results. And once a fake, fake news stories bubble, bubbles up, you know, it spreads so rapidly on these platforms and the political atmosphere is so poisoned and, and there's, there's also no such thing as absolute truth, um, that, that there's no way that a team of human fact checkers can keep up, the, keep up with the problem. And, and so I think, you know, if you want to regulate this, it, it's doomed to fail because if you have an algorithm that optimizes purely for engagement and it amplifies these nutty stories that are being shared on these platforms, and, and, and when this algorithm is at the heart of your business model, then I believe there are only two ways to solve the problem, which is you either change the algorithm, and that is very hard because this is a very complex, you know, fitness function they apply and they also don't share, you know, the insights of the algorithms with the regulator, uh, or you change the business model, you know, by switching from advertising to subscription. I think anything else these companies will do to solve, you know, this problem of fake news and algorithmic biases, to take this as an example, is a band-aid to cure the symptoms. It doesn't solve the root cause of the problem. And it's going to be very challenging for the regulator to intervene there. If they intervene, they're going to break these companies up in some weird way. And who knows what the unintended consequences are. Yes. Uh, on unintended consequences and, and, and content moderation, like, uh, like regulators expect companies to like take down what they define and very poorly defined as harmful, harmful content uh, in, in an hour or 24 hours. And <laughs> the unintended consequence of that is that they're going to start curving essentially free speech because they're, you're making them liable for something they can't really control at that scale or, or not that quick at least. 
speaking of Europe and, and regulation, and I'm going to use this as a segue into the second part of our conversation, with it, which is books. And the, the reason I got to know you was a review of a book called Disunited Nations. So, and that book is essentially uh, geopolitical predictions. So I'm wondering, like, when it comes to technology first and AI second, like, how do you see the whole, like, U.S. versus China thing? And then what's Europe's role? So the current state of the U.S.-China relationship probably bears some similarities to the relationship between the U.S. and the U.S.S.R. in 1945, uh, in that you have two countries that have tremendous cultural and linguistic differences that have become rival tech superpowers uh, and that are now engaging in an accelerating arms race uh, in AI development. And the, the rift between these two sides is growing as we speak. Uh, I mean, TikTok is just the latest example of, uh, of recent. Um, and the risk of, for Europe, I think, is, to, is, is being caught between two stools. Like we, we, don't have a large, we don't have large local tech companies like the US and China. So we're dependent on foreign-owned tech platforms. And regulation alone doesn't make a region competitive, in my eyes. In, in terms of the AI, you know, in the US and China, what are they strong at? What are they weak at? I think the US with Canada as its sidekick, is, is clearly the world leader in AI research. I mean, the US has the best talent. It has large tech companies who have the resources to fund their own AI labs. Uh, and on the other hand, China is, is, is a leader in deploying AI. You know, it has, it has also very large domestic you know, champions like Alibaba, Tencent, Baidu. Uh, it has a large domestic market. In contrast to Western countries, data privacy is is only selectively enforced by the state. And China is also engaging in mass-scale industrial espionage. Interestingly, this is like a, something I've been reading up on recently, and I, I find it very fascinating. Uh, like one of the key driving forces of the tech industry, um, and the AI boom in particular, is, is the semiconductor. And while the US leads the world in, in the design of chips, it, it produces only a fraction of them. You know, the, the dominant global chip foundry today is TSMC in Taiwan. They produce chips for companies like NVIDIA, Qualcomm, AMD, you know, every AI startup uses, uses chipsets from these companies. And, and the interesting thing now is that Intel, the largest US chip manufacturer, recently announced that it had fallen behind schedule in the, in the process technology needed to make the next generation of chips. And so, America is, you know, suddenly increasingly dependent on Taiwan and South Korea, where Samsung is based, uh, for very critical resource of the innovation economy. And that was also something that I noticed when reading the book that you just mentioned as a segue, Peter Zion's This United Nations, that he, he didn't at all have this on, on his map, like the whole AI yeah, nationalism or the whole semiconductor industry and the worldwide structure of supply chains, he, he really glossed over these things and, and was more focused on other things. And that's what essentially prompted me to write this post that, that got us together. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a very interesting and extremely complex problem, particularly at a time when China uh, is, is becoming ever more far-reaching and like Taiwan is always, has always been China's sort of uh, sweet not sweet spot but i don't know what's the word for that but in their interest i guess anyway let's let's switch lanes to something less dramatic the the book we were talking about uh was part of a quarantine like reading challenge for you like tell me a bit more about that yes so um so when the coronavirus pandemic broke out in march and everyone was transitioning into lockdown I was beginning to notice two things for myself. The one thing was that the stay-at-home orders had relatively few consequences on the overall operations of our company, which I found interesting. You know, we all started working from home, and that was it. You know, business as usual. And the reason why we handled that transition so smoothly is that we were a partially remote company already before COVID. So we had two offices in Berlin, Toronto. Uh, we had several people working remotely, and so we had the tools and the culture in place when the pandemic happened. The second thing I noticed was when you know when it came to personal productivity, and and in that regard, I wasn't prepared at all for this pandemic because I suddenly found it you know I had all this time at hand, but I found it very hard 
to concentrate on anything longer than a tweet or a blog post. And it was very hard to finish a book. And so I had this idea in March um, and April of holding myself accountable to a public reading discipline by you know, reading one book a week, or at least aiming to read one book a week, and then sharing uh, a snarky tweet length review of that book so that people on Twitter get something out of the whole project as well. And um, I'm surprised how well it has worked. Um, I've now finished 20 books since the beginning of the lockdown and it far exceeded my expectations. So holding yourself accountable really works. <laughs> Definitely. Um, how do you pick those books? Like what's your mechanism for finding stuff to read? I used to buy books uh, by just walking into books uh, into a bookstore without the intention of buying anything. That's madness. And then, yeah, and then I walked out <laughs> with five books, uh, you know, that had a great cover, but I actually didn't end up reading them. So over the years, I I've refined my technique my technique for for picking books. I get a lot of inspiration on Twitter. I get a lot of inspiration from my network. And I also sometimes go down these uh, lengthy internet rabbit holes to re research the best book on a certain topic. And either way, you know, either, either you know, I research the book or someone recommends it. I, I usually have, you know, the technique consists of an intermediate step where I, I don't buy the book right away, but I put it into my Amazon shopping cart and I wait for a second data point. And so if you know, if I, I've, I've you know, seen an interesting book that I like and I have it in my cart and you come to me and you say, I just read this, this is amazing, then I have a second data point and I have even more conviction and then I usually buy it. And the other, other way I, 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 I buy and, and read books is that I, you know, when I identify a topic that I don't know not much about or I just want to learn more about, I usually you know, do a little bit of research into what the best books are and then I, I read a couple of books on the topics. But I mean, this, this, this whole process of not buying right away when you see a nice cover, but you know, actually slowing down the purchasing process a little bit actually helps in, in you know, reading more of the books you actually end up buying because otherwise you, you buy, 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 and you never have the time to spend to get everything, to see everything. I love this idea of a second data point as a filter. So I'm, I think I'm going to start applying that myself. Otherwise, I just get shippings like every single week. It's insane. Um, I'm wondering, what's your favorite book of the lockdown project? I'm currently reading Michael Neufeld's biography uh, about Werner von Braun. I think it's my favorite book of the lockdown so far. So um, Werner von Braun was this German-American rocket engineer who was the leading figure in the development of the V2 rocket in Nazi Germany, and who after the war became the chief architect of Saturn V, which propelled the Apollo spaceship to the moon. And it, it's this amazing book about a very, very complicated man. You know, on the one hand, you have this brilliant person, you know, real genius and visionary, who was the driving force behind Apollo. And on the other hand, you're dealing with this Nazi war criminal who was a member in the SS, who was involved in the exploitation of concentration camp labor, and who felt no moral scruples whatsoever. He was just following his dream of flying to the moon. And in many ways, he resembles Goethe's Faust, you know, who makes the proverbial Faustian pact with the devil to, to build great engineering works for what he believes to be the better, betterment of mankind. And, and the title of the book captures this tension perfectly you know the title is dreamer of space engineer of war and and this tension between you know science on the one hand and moral and political choices on the other hand often exists when you're working on frontier technology you know be it rockets or the atomic bomb or today artificial intelligence and so it, it, it's a book that i i i enjoy a lot you know, I'm reading it currently, and I can highly recommend it to to anyone who's working in AI or related field today. You mentioned the atomic book. I have this book on my to-do list. On uh, I think it's called the Making of the Atomic Bomb. Can you keep, have you read that? Is that like I'm looking for a second data point now? Yeah, that's an amazing book. Definitely. I mean, it's it's a it's a chunky. It's a doorstopper of a book, but it's 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 in the same category. I think. In many ways, Robert Oppenheimer and the whole Manhattan Project faced you know, some of the same tensions between science and moral choices as Lona and Brown had to choose. I, I have my, my second data point then. then. 
That's that's my next book after finishing up with the years of Lyndon Johnson, which means I have a while to go. What do you think of 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 that book so far? So um, that's a great question. So just to give everyone some background, so the years of Lyndon Johnson, it's Robert Caro's like second series, the first being the power broker, and essentially Robert Caro is this amazing biographer and i think one of our twitter exchanges he said he was to you one of your favorite like non-fiction writers or biographers yeah and he he writes this extremely detailed uh, extremely or thoroughly researched books that are as you said door stoppers for book i'm talking a thousand plus pages on well the first one is on this guy called robert moses which was uh um not an elected official, but a public official in New York, and then uh, Lyndon Johnson, LBJ, the American president. And yeah, so I went through the Power Broker, probably one of my favorite books, like top three, definitely. And now I'm going through, through the first one of the years of Lyndon Johnson, which is five books. The fifth is uh, hasn't come out, come out yet, uh, but I'm going through the first one. And so far, it's it's fascinating. I, I, I can't stop reading. So I'm wondering, like, uh, have you finished the, the series? I have, yeah. I think you summarized it perfectly. I mean, Robert Caro, is, he's, his job is he's an American biographer, but he's actually not interested in just writing biographies about historical figures, right? I mean, he's interested in understanding political power, you know, how power is accumulated, how it's used, why some political projects are realized while others aren't. And he, he, he uses the, the format of a biography to get insights into the essence of power. And, and so his two biographies about Robert Moses and Lyndon Johnson are not only portraits of two politicians, but they're also portraits of, you know, the system that these two, two men operated them. And the, the four volumes of, of the Lyndon Johnson books that are out so far, you know, have a very special place in my bookshelf. I have to admit that because they are unlike anything I've ever read in my life. I mean, it's this, I mean, you're currently reading it. It's this monumental story on a very grand scale about this tragic, almost Shakespearean character that changed America in both good and bad ways. I mean, while reading the four volumes, you, you develop very complicated feelings for this man, right? I mean, you, you both marvel and you resent this political genius because he could be both very compassionate and also very ruthless. It's almost like, you know, having Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in one body. And it's, it's definitely a super fascinating story, but I think the really big lesson for me was that understanding you know power structures and understanding the system you're operating in whether it's you know the political arena or the startup ecosystem or a large corporate you know understanding these systems and, and you're learning to analyze them really helps you understand how and why decisions are made i mean if we take silicon valley as an example the, the bay area is a very status and social capital driven system where you, you know, have certain unwritten rules that supersede the official system of influence and power, you know, and which govern everyone's behavior in the ecosystem. The very same way that, you know, Robert Caro in the third volume describes, you know, the, the unwritten rules of the Senate and, and how Lyndon Johnson broke them. And so, you know, in Silicon Valley, whether it's, it's you know, the paid forward culture, or the concept of you know social capital, you know even very young participants in Silicon Valley, like you and me, uh, who still have to you know who still young and have to you know prove themselves in some regards, are being taken in that ecosystem because of you know the concept of social capital and upside regret on the side of angels and VCs, who in the past you know have passed on on other young founders who ended up building a unicorn. And so I think as a founder or as a general participant in the startup ecosystem, reading Kara's books provides you with, you know, the tools and an eye for these dynamics so that you can use them in your favors. And so I think it goes way beyond just reading a biography about Lyndon Johnson, which most people would probably find a little boring because he was this almost, you know, unknown sandwich president between John F. Kennedy and, and Nixon, both presidents that are much more in the public conscious. But I think there's this other dimension that makes these books very special. I'm, I'm glad you. I'm glad you're reading it. 
It, it is, and it is, and it's worth mentioning that it takes Carter uh, like 10 years to write each book, right? So the first one came out in 1982. The Power Broker came out in the 70s, and, and he still hasn't finished uh, the last one. A friend had this concern uh, around COVID and Carl, and he said, like, I would go to where he is and just take care of him <laughs> until this yeah. whole thing ends. There are a bunch of other lessons I think we could we can draw from Carl's uh, work. So not all of them are good. For instance, the value of secrecy that comes a lot, in at least in the first book on LBJ and definitely on The Power Broker. Yeah. Then the like it's it's a, at least the power broker is a huge lesson on second order consequences. Um, yeah. So other than just amassing power, like Robert Moses wanted to gen- generally alleviate congestion in in New York, and the <laughs> the thing is like he he built all these highways to mass congestions uh, congestion, and sort of he prioritized that. I mean, all the resources to build these highways and he sort of left all the public transport. And the problem with that was that as public transport was forgotten, it became worse and worse. And it was like this negative feedback loop uh, and everyone from public transport started going to highways. And essentially by building highways, he made a problem worse. And the, the final lesson, I think, is there's this concept of uh that's very popular right now called seniors which is essentially communal genius i mean like there's this theory uh that of this like one person who sort of drives mankind or progress meaning technological progress like let's say the alexander the great right or um genghis khan but there's this new camp about seniors and then how let's say the Renaissance in Florence or the Enlightenment in Europe or the Industrial Revolution or Silicon Valley now. Like, it's, it's not one man. But clearly, by reading Cara, you can see what the power of one man means. Definitely, yeah. And it's, I mean, it's a book. You know, sometimes, it, you know, it makes you very happy when you're reading. Sometimes it makes you very sad when you're reading. And I think to stay on the happy and the optimistic note, I think one lesson is also that, you know, democracy, whatever its flaws, can still produce good results from bad men. You don't have to be a person of good character to be an effective leader. I mean, you know, most people would consider Bill Clinton as a man of you know, questionable character or judgment. But you know, by and large, I think most people agree that he was an effective president. And on the other hand, you have someone like Jimmy Carter, who was a really fine man, but a very ineffective leader. I think that's a perfect place to end them. So thank you so much, Moritz, for your time. It was a fascinating conversation and I'd love to do it again. Hey, this is Guns Again. If you enjoyed this episode of the Seat Table Podcast, please let me know by leaving an honest review. If you want to get more good stuff from me, subscribe to SeatTable.com. SeatTable is a weekly newsletter on European technology. It goes out every Friday morning and it's read by thousands of founders, investors, and operators. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. Ciao.